Thursday the 14th of November 1985. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. This is London's West End. I'm looking forward to meeting A.L. Rouse for afternoon tea. Are you free? Yes, certainly. Can you take me to the Athenaeum, please? Yes, certainly, Governor. Where would you like? The hotel or the club? Uh, going to the club. Right, thank you. A.L. Rouse is one of Britain's most controversial scholars, historian of Elizabethan England, Shakespearean scholar, poet, essayist and critic. His output is astonishing. Now retired from All Souls in Oxford, where he taught for most of his life, he lives in his native Cornwall. He has come especially to London to record a conversation with me in the Athenaeum, his London club on the Mall. Go, Governor. The Athenaeum Club. Thank That's you very two pound forty, please. Good afternoon. I have an appointment with Dr. A. L. Rouse. Oh yes, we'd like to come in. Thank you very much indeed. Rouse is my name. That's right. My name is Andy O'Mahony. Yes. Very pleased to meet you. Well, I think the first thing is we both must have a cup of tea. Excellent idea. Don't you think? Excellent you, idea. I mean, you've got plenty of time. Um, uh, for we we can um, don't have to do our homework for a bit. Fine. Let's have some tea because I've been travelling in the train all day. Indeed. So shall we go up and shall have look, some tell, tea? Yeah, tell me a bit first of all about the Athenaeum. Yeah, leave your coat here. Yeah, sure. Yes. I think it's a, of course a very very fine building that was uh, designed by Decimus Burton. Uh, in the Regency period. And I think uh, the Athenaeum has always been um, um, included a very large number of civil servants and quite a number of political figures. What, what famous and politicians? Also, a lot of bishops. Uh -huh, I can see that. And a certain number of. That's, that's a Nosbert Lancaster there, that, that too. Yes, sir. I uh, have to send this customer's phone before you, and I come to you back, sir. All right. Yeah. Indian tea. Yes, sir. Uh, and I should think toasted tea cake. Yes, very good, sir. When yes. you're free. Yes. Toasted tea cake. That's one of your your favourites, is it? Uh, what room are we in here? This is. You carry that there. You carry that bag there. Yes, the tapes and things are, are in there. Many people tend to see you as a snob, as a social snob first and last, but increasingly it seems to me you're, you're a Cornishman first and last. Well, my, um, uh, my people were completely working class. 
but what really makes me different is the fact that I'm fundamentally rather an aesthete. I've always liked poetry and music and pictures and painting and sculpture and all that kind of thing, so that you, you can say snob if you like. I prefer you to say elitist. It only means that somebody who has really a sense of beauty found that found himself absolutely starved of that in a working-class home, just as D. H. Lawrence did. Yes, but it is said of you, though, that you do like the company of dukes and duchesses and so on. I like the, no. Well, I think that's rather silly. I like the company um, of intelligent people. Uh, I've never ceased to enjoy the company of my own neighbours at home in Cornwall. My chief friends there are the people who really help me in the garden uh, and the farmers round about. Um, if it comes to the grandees, like your own Powers Court, for example, I just really uh, want to see what their houses look like. When Desmond Guinness, for instance, showed me Castletown, well, of course, that's absolutely nature to me. And I hope you see the point of that. I mean, I want to see um, you know, the most beautiful things that are going, like this marvellous exhibition for the treasures from English country houses just going on in Washington. Many people will be surprised to learn that you began as a left-winger. You were a great admirer of, of Marx, um, preferring him to, um, oh, say, people like Keynes at the time. You, you have a great admiration for the perspective of... of Marxist I don't think there was anything remarkable about that to you. You see, most of the clever young men in Oxford were really rather on the left in my time. And in any case, coming from the working classes as I did, I was determined that people shouldn't say that I was a snob and had become a Tory just because I'd gone to Oxford. I stuck to a working class line, even when it really rather ceased to represent me. And there was a reason for that. Um, in the 1920s and the 1930s, they were the most two deplorable decades in English history, when everything went wrong. Uh, those old men like Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain really trying uh, to make terms with Hitler and so forth, it was that that kept me on the left because I really had rather ceased to believe in left economics, you know. I mean, today I entirely agree with the economics of Margaret Thatcher. But um, I, I'll come back to that in, in a moment, but I mean, you would say that uh, someone like Keynes lacked, say, the historical perspective of, of a Marx. Uh, I was always very critical of Keynes's politics. Keynes was a liberal, and I used to be arguing with Keynes, what the hell is the point of going on being a liberal? This is the end of the Liberal Party. If you want to be effective, you ought to put yourself in relation to a great mass movement like the Labour Party. Now, Keynes was too much of a snob to do that which was what he ought to have done, because he, as a matter of fact, largely agreed with our great man, who was Ernest Bevin, on, the question, on economic questions. Where I disagreed with Keynes was Keynes's Cambridge pro-Germanism. Uh, he wrote a book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which undermined the validity of the peace treaty which ended the First German War and really gave the Germans the excuse to do it all over again a second time. Now, I know you wouldn't go as far as that in, in describing 
Alan Taylor's book on the Second World War, but you think he's done a lot of damage in the uh, Second Oh, War. I think Alan Taylor's book is his most disgraceful performance. The whole argument of it is that Hitler wasn't much more responsible for the Second World War than we were. Well, I mean, that did untold damage. Um, the kind of Nazi sympathisers in Germany, at least four of their papers came out with Germany no more responsible for the Second War. Oxford professor says so. Now, I think that was very irresponsible. And um, I'm rather a man of principle about history and politics. But, what, but perhaps what he was really getting at is that it wasn't Hitler alone, that Hitler was responding to certain forces at work in the society. And so I'll on. tell you what Alan was really getting at, mm -hmm. which one hardly dares to say, because people would get it so mixed up in their minds, because most people haven't really got the capacity to think. Alan was really wanting to say that it wasn't Hitler only who was responsible, it was the German people just as much. And on that line he was more or less right. But of course when he gave the impression that the English and so forth were responsible, I mean the only responsibility the English had was a negative one, not standing up to Hitler in time. Most people haven't got the capacity to think, you say. Are you saying most people are sheep, in, in effect? No, they don't have the capacity to think about really big historic issues and so forth. Hitler knew that. That was why he was so successful. In Mein Kampf, for instance, it had an epigraph, you know, which said, uh, the German people have no idea uh, to what an extent they have to be gulled in order to be led. But of course that was left out the moment he came to power. But he knew that ordinary humans aren't very good at thinking. But are you rowing in behind the, the sort of great man hypothesis, the idea that single individuals, it's single individuals that make the difference? No. I mean, I think the Germans as the people were responsible. But it was Hitler who really organised them for the Second War. It was a marvellous achievement on his part, really. But they were just simply two waves in the German aggression to get on top in Europe, which was what they intended. And I think Alan Taylor knows that, uh, so that he doesn't blame uh, Hitler um, uh, solely, but he knows that it is a responsibility of the German people as it is. You mentioned Margaret Thatcher. How can somebody who was such a, a great admirer of Marx admire Margaret Thatcher? Well, I think she's a very remarkable woman. Uh, after all, she has made history. I don't suppose anybody um, would have expected to see a woman Prime Minister in Britain. Uh, so that uh, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, you've got to hand it out to her that she really has made history. Of course, there are other things about her that I very much like. Uh, she's absolutely sincere. She's not like an ordinary politician, she hasn't got any humbug. Now the British were absolutely humbugged along in the 1920s and 30s by Baldwin and Chamberlain until it led them practically over the edge of the precipice. Margaret Thatcher hasn't got any of that. Uh, that's why, as a matter of fact, she has rather an unfavourable press. I think it's disgraceful, the kind of lack of a sense of justice in the press with regard to this woman who has at any rate managed to keep inflation down and has defeated the trade unions. I'm still not clear, though, what the roots are of your own 
disenchantment with the left. You started out on the left. Well, I don't think they're really capable of governing. I mean, look at them now. They've lost, as a matter of fact, most uh, of their ablest men. People like David Owen and Roy Jenkins. Um, or if you take in your own profession in journalism, a man like Paul Johnson. Uh, they've all of them got absolutely sick and disillusioned with the showing uh, of the left. Uh, only I was there uh, 10 or 15 years before they were. I mean, I was disillusioned by the left, really, from 1945. I've never really bothered to vote since then. Mind you, I had great admiration for the Labour leaders of 1945, especially Ernest Bevin. They were a big lot of men. Clem Attlee, Ernest Bevin, um, Herbert Morrison, who was a special admiration of mine, and Stafford Cripps. They, they made a strong quadrilateral. And the Labour people have never really had anybody equal to that since, I think. You've spent most of your life at Oxford. You were a student there, and you taught there for many years bef before uh, retiring. What were, are your main thoughts about, about teaching as a profession, teaching as a career? What, what did you try to do? Well, I think people are really better as teachers when they are younger. Do you agree with that? Mm -hmm. They get really rather sick and tired of it as they get older. They get rather disillusioned, like me, with politics, you know. Uh, and I think I was rather a good tutor when I was young. But my real passion, as you can understand, Andy, was always for writing. I mean, uh, uh, from the time I was a boy, I didn't have anybody really to help me or direct me until I got to the grammar school. And there I was very much helped by the headmaster, who really sent the poems that I wrote when I was a schoolboy to be published in public school verse, along with all these grandees like Graham Greene and Christopher Isherwood and Whiston Ord. And of course I didn't know anything about public school verse in those days. I think he just simply sent my poems along so that I was really published when I was only a schoolboy. But writing, since I didn't have anybody to tell me, I picked up a tip from reading Robert Louis Stevenson, and he always carried a pocket notebook, so that he always wrote into the notebook exactly the way things looked. And that has helped my historical writing. Macaulay used to do that. I go and look at the places, and I look at the people who appear in history on their tombs or in their portraits. Most historians, you know, don't have a visual sense. I noticed that in, in your book on, on studying history, that you, you talk about the importance of starting where you are, starting lo at a local level, the, at the world immediately about you. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, and I think that's very helpful for teaching in schools, don't you? Mm -hmm. If you happen to live in a historic uh, area, so it's marvellous, really, to grow up in a historic city like Dublin, with those wonderful 18th century squares and great palaces just outside, like Castletown and Rusborough um, and Poe's Court. Perhaps you'll think it rather snobbish of me to like these beautiful palaces rather than the slums of Mount Joy Square. I'd like you to rehabilitate Mount Joy Square, and then you've got these fine old cathedrals, you see. Indeed, but as you say, in other words, you'd have people start with, uh, 
with their physical surroundings, yes. taking notes, looking at them, and, and, then, help. and then move on to reading. Yes, and I think the same is true for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You see, I've really become uh, tremendously involved in Shakespeare in uh, these later years, and I think there also the fundamental thing is theatre. You go and see Shakespeare, and then you can read the play. Of course, this is why I've been engaged in America, in modernising the text of Shakespeare. I've been very conservative and right-wing, as you would expect. About that, I've stuck to every half-line of Shakespeare. A fundamentalist, in effect, yeah, yes. Well, yes, but when you come uh, to words that we don't know the meaning of, and all the vows and these and thines, this is catching on in America. Uh, this April, for instance, they put on at Stratford, Connecticut, they put on uh, my text, my edition of The Taming of the Shrew. And this next April I've got to go over because at Stratford, Connecticut, they're putting on uh, my text uh, of Hamlet. And they're also doing it in Florida. It hasn't really cottoned on in this uh, old slow coach of a country yet. It'll take them uh, a good many years before they catch up with there's it. There's a lot of resistance though, isn't there? Well, what I've found, yes, is a... Well, of course, they don't have any imagination. What I found in America was that quite a lot of uh, classes um, in American schools and colleges were going off Shakespeare because they really could not take the archaic language. Well, I think that's an awful pity. And I think rather than have that, I'm prepared to meet them halfway by getting rid of superfluous difficulties. Yeah. All the double comparatives. You see, it's no longer modern grammar. This is more, much more worser than it was. Nor shall you not uh, think that neither. You see, it isn't grammar today. And it was grammar in the Elizabethan age. So I'm engaged in just bringing it up to date. So many famous writers have been members of this club where we are now, the, the Athenaeum. The Athenaeum. Mm. Yes, very famous ones. Uh, there's a very famous story about Anthony Trollope, the novelist, mm. uh, which is absolutely true, you know. Uh, at the other end of the drawing room where we had tea, uh, he overheard a couple of uh, members of the club discussing his famous character of Mrs. Proudie, who I think is the most wonderful character in his novels. She's the very bossy wife of the bishop who really runs the whole diocese and tells everybody off. And he heard this couple say, it's time that he killed her off. Well, old Trollope, who was rather bearded and irascible, he got up and said, I've heard, gentlemen, what you say. I shall just go straight home and do it. And he did. And I think it's an awful pity, because I'd like to have more about Mrs. Proudie. And there are several other stories, you know. It's said that Thackeray used to write here in the uh, private library. And certainly Matthew Arnold used to write his letters here, because you can recognise it from when he's describing that he's looking out on Waterloo Place. From this state of beatitude, he calls it, because he's away from all the worries of the family and so on, and can really re relax with uh, the great library, which I very much value here. Elliot, and of course my friend Elliot. Elliot was a member. Mm -hmm. Elliot was made a special member under Rule 2, by which the club each year elects two rather distinguished names, uh, usually one on the cultural side and another on the scientific. 
and I'm very proud to say that they very kindly asked me, so I feel really rather treading in the footsteps of my old friend Elliot, who was terribly kind to me and published all my early poems, including that one I read to you. Yeah, I rather like the story, which you tell in Glimpses of Great Man about, did you introduce him to C.S. Lewis? Did you bring them together? Or? Uh, no, it was an, uh, an Oxford man called Charles Williams, who mm -hmm. was very well known in his day, and he thought it was a great pity that these two very famous Anglicans uh, really had never met each other. The truth was that C.S. Lewis was very old-fashioned in his view about poetry. He really thought that English poetry had come to an end, you know, with Chesterton, and didn't like Eliot's poetry at all. Well, Eliot, on his side, was rather shy. So when Eliot came down to Oxford to lunch at the Mitre, Eliot began rather shyly, saying, uh, You seem to me a, a much younger man, uh, really, to judge from your photograph. Well, this wasn't really very well received, and Lewis said nothing. So Eliot thought that he, perhaps he ought to try again. Mm -hmm. So he said, uh, I have been reading your book about Milton. Uh, the passages about Virgil are very good. <laughs> this went down rather worse. Really? Uh -huh. And as the waters closed over his head, all that uh, Eliot could be heard saying was, well, uh, speaking to you as a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that they ever made it up. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you Lewis was horribly dogmatic, you know. I liked him personally, but I didn't in the least agree with his books about the problem of pain and all that rot. Perhaps great men shouldn't meet like that at all. Uh, I'll tell you a very funny thing about great men, um, which I've only recently been thinking about. Uh, you know, in a recent book of mine, in where I had a portrait of Evelyn War, mm -hmm. I was terribly called over the coals by Auburn War for daring to point out what nonsense it was that Evelyn very often thought about religion, very sort of hostile to Anglicanism, uh, hated the uh, ecumenical movement and all this. Now, I've been thinking a rather an original thought. Have you ever noticed what an extraordinary thing it is that men of very great genius often think absolute rubbish. You know, Tolstoy was the greatest of novelists, and yet he thought that Shakespeare wasn't any good, and he thought that Beethoven wasn't any good. Or you take Milton, who after all is the second greatest poet in our language. Well, he thought the most awful rubbish about republicanism and puritanism, and he told two absolute crashing lies against Charles uh, the first. Well, similarly, you take the rubbish that Sartre thought in our time. Sartre, one of the most distinguished and very good French novelists, but he thought that Soviet Russia was the incarnation of human freedom. Well, he must have been a pretty good fool, don't you think? Yes, I, I wonder if you thought that. To think that. I wonder if he thought that. And, and yes, he thought that. He wrote it. He said that. And he said other silly things like that. He said, for instance, that in order to understand a man, you don't really need to know anything about his environment or his birth and his bringing up. Well, that's pretty silly. What is then? You know, you talk about great men, you talk about genius. Yes. Is it a matter of obsession, of sticking with one thing, 
What is it that, that uh, makes the difference? Well, I, I don't know myself. I think you're suggesting a very uh, uh, helpful suggestion there. It may be that they do get awfully unbalanced, overbalanced in one particular direction. I think that is, uh, I think you're right there. I think that would be true of Tolstoy. I think it would also be true of old Bertie Russell, whom I knew a bit. Well, of course, I expect he was a mathematical genius, but what Bertie wrote, you know, about politics was absolute rot. Just to return to war, did you, did you like war? Evelyn War. Mm. Well, again, Evelyn, you see, he was undoubtedly a man of genius as a writer. And I think very often a man of genius is very complex, and there are two sides to him. And I think there was one side to Evelyn that was absolutely charming, and then there was the other side, which he knew quite well himself, was bloody awful. He, he says in some of his letters, I don't know why he says that I am so awful. And of course quite a lot of people would forgive him that for his good qualities, because he had the courage of a lion. Evelyn had marvellous courage, and he had genius. But a lot of the things that he thought about religion were just absolute rot. In these portraits of, of other people, um, we learn quite a bit about yourself, of course. One thing in particular, and that is, and it, it emerges in a piece you, you wrote about uh, Rebecca Weston, Gollany Rees, to the effect that you yourself have stuck to your last. You've continued to write all the time. You, you were never deflected from, from what you conceive to be your main purpose. I think that, uh, of course, I wasted a certain amount of time on politics when I was young in the 1930s. In a way, you couldn't help it because I saw the absolute catastrophe really coming down on the country and made me ill. I already had duodenal ulcer when I was quite young, you know, from uh, having too much of a struggle to get to Oxford. Only one university scholarship for the whole county of Cornwall. I had to get it or fall by the wayside. Well, one result of my being a Labour candidate, I was able to make propaganda for them, at any rate, to make four university scholarships for the county. But um, some of my closest friends thought that I made a mistake in uh, really being so interested in politics. I dare say they were right, and I really am sorry that I went on with it and wasted so much time and energy and grief over it all. On the other hand, of course, I learnt from it as a historian. You know, the great historian Gibbon, uh, who was just an amateur soldier during the Seven Years' War in a Hampshire regiment, he said he found that this was helpful to the historian of the Roman Empire. Well, I learnt some things from my contact with politics. I learnt what fundamental fools hum human beings are in the mass. Look at the world today. Look at it. I now agree with Stephen Spender's uncle, who said, you know, the longer I live, the more I see that things really are as silly as they seem. <laughs> I get the impression that you're on fairly good terms with your, your fellow historians. In a, in, a, in a profession that's often quite acrimonious. Well, I'm really rather a solitary, remember. I think you'll probably have spotted that in my work. Uh, I don't really team up with them. 
uh, because I'm so obsessed by the subject in itself. I don't really waste any time on all these professional kind of uh, conferences or international congresses or sitting on committees. I just simply get on with the job. Of course, it makes me quite critical uh, of other historians. Uh, my admiration, for instance, uh, goes more for the generation before me, uh, like the great, uh, greatest of historians in Britain, G.M. Trevelyan. There's a good Cornish name for you. He, uh, of course, the Trevelyans were a very, very old Cornish family, and he kept up a bit of his contact with uh, Cornwall, though he was really fundamentally a Northumbrian. But he was a great historian and a great man. What about, I don't pretend yes. to be a great man. Yeah, what about people in the generation after you? I mean, Hugh Trevor Roper now, Lord Well, there are quite passed. a number of them. Trevor uh, Roper passed through your hands. I rather agree with Trevor Roper's uh, um, work about German Germany, the last days of Hitler, um, is, um, is a brilliant book. And uh, Trevor Roper does write brilliantly. Um, I find myself uh, very much in agreement with my fellow Tudor historian, Professor Elton of Cambridge, I think he and I um, see rather eye to eye. I don't really, uh, you see, as you have seen, agree with my older, much older friend, uh, A.J.P. Taylor, over Hitler and Germany. And of course I didn't really approve of his book on Max Beaverbrook. I knew Beaverbrook a bit, and um, Alan Taylor says that uh, he was absolutely in love with him. And um, he notices, for instance, that in Beaverbrook's books, uh, Beaverbrook sat very loosely to the truth. He very often fictionalised his history. Now that's the one crime for a historian. My absolute principle is you must tell the truth, and Beaverbrook didn't. Of course, there were other things against Beaverbrook, too. I mean, he was uh, very much opposed uh, to... Um, he was very anti-American. I had it out with him when uh, he invited me to Canada and gave me an honorary degree and all that, and I protested against his taking an anti-American line. It really came, you see, deep down from his having been born a United Empire Loyalist, if you know what that means. Mm -hmm. um, his stock belonged to the old American stock that left the United States over the American Revolution. Just the, the You can't afford to be anti-American mm -hmm. in the dangers of the modern world. Yeah, but the point I was pursuing there really was that, it, that it's clear that you don't waste your energies in... in discussions or disputes with your colleagues. You, you don't go to conferences and you don't get into these kind of disputations. You save, save all your energy for your work. Well, I, I'm glad you think that. Well, that's I, the impression you I get call it. that really rather encouraging and so forth. I suppose I am obsessed with writing. I sometimes say to myself, you know, um, I don't write to live. I really live in order to write. Uh, the past is very real to me and it helps to keep me on an even keel. If I lived wholly in the 20th century, uh, I think I'd be off the rails with all the horrors going on around us the whole time. I regard uh, society as on the downgrade everywhere, so that I really live in the past. I'm really much more geared, you see, to the Elizabethan age 
uh, when you realise that men of ability in the Elizabethan age had an incentive. William Shakespeare started from very little, and look what he achieved. Francis Drake started as a poor boy, and look what he achieved. Well, what I hate about contemporary society is the kind of pressure that all the third-rate go in for to try and make everybody as third-rate as they are. Do you think the leaders of the world, the leaders of the Western world, have it in them to avoid a nuclear confrontation? Well, I think they're doing their best. I don't know what you think about this, Andy, but I think that um, they're all of them men and women of the best intentions who really want to do their best for their country uh, and for peace in the world. It just is that there are, as I said earlier, there are certain areas of conflict that are dangerous, like uh, Afghanistan, you see, is a, is, a, is a danger spot, and the Middle East is a worse danger spot. And, of course, we have danger spots nearer home, too. But isn't the structure of leadership something that's very primitive? When you think about it, that it's still two single individuals with their mob behind them facing each other uh, well, over a very important issue. And sometimes, look, uh, the historian sees that sometimes there are situations where you cannot get it right. Uh, it's like Cyprus, for instance, or the Lebanon. Uh, or other places nearer home. Um, I think that all you can do there is to be very, very patient and to try and damp down um, violence and terrorism uh, and so on. But in your gut, what do you feel? Do you think that we will avoid the big one, the big confrontation, the Holocaust, or not? Well, Winston Churchill thought that. You know that I knew Winston a little in the last years of his life, and he thought that the overwhelming danger to the planet was so great that nobody would really uh, uh, dream of touching it off. The only thing that you have to say uh, and make a qualification there is that something might go off by accident. And uh, if I can speak as a historian about a, a political issue, the really dangerous thing in history is when people have their back against the wall. If you have your back against the wall, and there's nowhere you can move, and you're for it, then you don't mind what you do. That's why uh, the whole aim and art of politics ought to be not to let things get just to that point. You agree with me? I heard you like say... Like South Africa, for instance. You see, I'm, I'm liberal-minded about making concessions. I'm liberal-minded about making, meeting people's just complaints and so forth. But I'm very much against letting them um, uh, go off at full steam ahead. It leads only to, uh, to, to explosions and danger. I heard you say earlier that Germany you had to... You want to get people to pipe down a bit. Yeah, I... Uh, that's rather like the English. The English, are, it's one of the good things about them, that uh, unlike the Celts, 
the English are actually a bit more easygoing, and that's rather a good thing, compared, say, with the Germans, who really get all fussed up in their head uh, with crazy notions like being, you know, the uh, heron folk, the master people. I mean, the, the, the worst people in Europe, really, to be on top. Well, I just, I mean, I just want to return to that. You said earlier that the Germans destroyed the 20th century. Well, I think they did, yes. They, they made the two wars. We don't need to have any doubt about that. Uh, they made the war of 1914. Um, a very um, uh, perceptive um, English statesman, uh, Amory, you know, uh, said to me over the Second War, he said, you know, the Germans so nearly brought it off the first time that it's to be understood that they should really have a second try. And my God, they nearly brought it off again. I wonder, though, if there are not dangers in talking about whole nations, whole societies, whole races in that way. That, in the sense that there is an element of destruction. Well, forgive in, me in for saying things. so, but that is a contemporary cliché which people like to trot out, and it isn't true. Everybody can tell a Frenchman from a German, or a German uh, from a Pole, or a Pole even from a Russian, so that there are certain such things as national characteristics. And certainly the German characteristics have been very dangerous for everybody else in Europe. That may be so, but what I'm thinking of, isn't it more salutary uh, to acknowledge the destructive capacity in, in one's own society, in one's own people. Uh, well, I'm prepared to agree with you there. One should be critical about one's own people. I am very critical about English, uh, one of the greatest of English weaknesses, English humbug. Because I've got a very acute nose <laughs> for humbug, like the way we were humbugged along by Baldwin and Chamberlain. You see, you could argue that in the case of the Germans, that in fact the reason that the Jews were made the scapegoat, the reason they were treated the way they were, was that the Germans were unable to handle, to deal with their own destructive capacities and had to externalize them and find... I don't think we really want, to, want anything complicated like that. The simple truth is that they knew perfectly well what was being do done and they did not care. Because one national characteristic of the Germans is that they have an absorbed selfishness. I've known that from living in Germany. They never can see another person's point of view. This is why they lost out. Imagine their being so crazy as to attack the United States of America. The British would never be such fools as that. How important have friendships been in your life? How, how nourishing in, in your own life? Friendships in my life? Yes. Oh, I've owed an enormous amount, I think, to my friends. Uh, I, uh, I, I've kept uh, going my friendships from, from my school days. It's really rather sad because I've now just come from Cornwall, where my oldest school friend, who was quite a distinguished scientist, has been knocked down and killed by a motor car. There are you are, the dangers of today. Uh, I've kept going loyally with my old, old friends, and I miss most of all my closest Oxford friends, whom I'm terribly devoted to, and who are nearly all of them dead now. That's the sad thing about living to be old.
The good thing about living to be old is that you have a marvellous uh, vista of all these memories, you know, going back. It's fascinating to turn them on, provided you don't go gaga. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there have been so many people indeed, people uh, we haven't mentioned so far. Uh, and I think of all of them that I ought to single out an individual with whom you had a particular friendship, and that was uh, Rebecca West. Well, I think it wasn't a very close one, you know. I think a very close friendship with Rebecca would have been a bit dangerous, don't you think? <laughs> but, it, but it was an important one. She was, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, she was really rather a great woman, you know. Uh, it's very interesting. You talk, we, we were talking a moment about national characteristics. Now, Rebecca was absolutely intelligible as partly Irish and partly Scotch. And I spotted that in reading her works. For instance, she never had the proper English usage of shall and will. She always had them mixed up. And should and would. Of course, most people don't know the correct uh, usage. Now, please tell us. Well, the correct usage is quite easy to remember if you remember the wrong usage. I will be drowned and nobody shall save me. It's the wrong way round. And uh, Re Rebecca always got that wrong. So did Oscar Wilde. Uh, because Wilde was Irish. You see, the Irish and the Scottish and the American usage is the other way round. Uh, and uh, Wilde used to get an Englishman to read his texts because he was uncertain about uh, shall and will. It's all so mixed up now that really nobody can tell uh, how to use it correctly. I'll bet you that Trevor Roper and I would never make a mistake like that, either <laughs> of us. You are now in your 80s. You've had a very full life. You've written so much. Um, do you still, I mean, how do you approach the act of writing still? Is it, some, is it still part of your your daily... Oh, I think I simply love writing. Uh, I start the day rather early, you know. I wake up about six o'clock and then I make the morning tea and I carry uh, around the tea to my housekeeper, the wing in the country house where I've made it at last. I've no intention of going on living in a working-class cottage, I can assure you. And uh, then I have the tea tray and I write right on until uh, my breakfast comes. And then I write right on, very often in bed, like old Winston, he did a lot of writing in bed, until the sun gets up and then I can go out gardening. Because I'm an absolute slave to the garden. There are six acres of it at home. Oh, every morning I've been at it through this beautiful October until I can hardly drag my poor old limbs about. I'm a very good man with a hook, um, quite good at raking, not so good at making a bonfire, but I mean, if you make a bonfire for me, I work to it like mad. And I also write a bit about gardening. Not that I'm a real gardener, you know, I haven't got the brains for that. <laughs> I'm just a handy man, I just uh, work hard at it. And I don't do anything mechanical. I'm not any good at mowing an acre and a half of lawn. Do you have strong views about about dying, about death, about an afterlife? Strong views about everything, don't you find? I, so far. <laughs> I don't think we really ought to talk about an afterlife. Um, you know what the great philosopher Wittgenstein said? Of things about which nothing can be said, 
thereof. Nothing should be said. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't describe myself as without a kind of religion. The only thing is that I do think the whole mystery of the cosmos is so tremendous, the more you know about it, the more mysterious the whole thing becomes. Uh, so that I think that religions are in a way a bit local. Um, they really apply in the particular areas where they carry the character of the people. I mean, the Middle East is probably rather naturally Mohammedan, uh, India probably naturally Buddhist and Hindu, um, the Southern Europe is naturally Catholic, uh, some of Northern Europe is rather naturally Protestant. The English, as usual, are really a bit mixed up betwixt and between. Uh, but I think that it may be that some religions have a means of mediating the mystery uh, of the universe. Uh, Catholicism may, uh, Buddhism may, uh, this is why I think that the contemporary ecumenical movement is so absolutely right, and even in war, of course, was monstrously wrong to be against it. When you think that in the past, historically, people were engaged in killing each other for absolute nonsense they couldn't be certain about. You killed somebody for believing in transubstantiation, and then you killed somebody for not believing in it. This is one of the things that makes me convinced, you see, that human beings in the mass are the most frightful fools.